With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Pamela Fierce Walsh. She is a senior advisor for conflict and critical minerals, the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the United States Department of State. Pamela joins me to discuss responsible sourcing initiatives from the former Trump administration, where we may be headed under the Biden administration. Highlights include what are or what is responsible sourcing, what is the public-private partnership around these issues, why is this now seen as a national security issue, the executive order which impacts domestic supply chains relying on critical mineral sourcing from foreign adversaries, and what is the process for considering this issue and where we may be going under the Biden administration. It's a fascinating exploration of an issue around supply chain compliance I know you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you are in for a real treat today because we have back with us Pamela Fierst Walsh. She is a senior advisor on conflict and critical minerals and U.S. representative to the Kimberly process. She has been on this podcast before, but it's been way too long, so I asked her if uh, she would join us again and kind of bring us up. Uh, today. So, Pamela, first of all, welcome back, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Hey, Tom. Thanks a lot. I'm really happy to be here. So, uh, could you uh, remind the audience kind of what your role is as a senior advisor for conflict and critical minerals? Sure. So, I uh, sit in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. So, we have our fingers in a whole lot of different perspectives dealing with private sector issues whether it's threat finance and combating it, how to prevent bad people from profiting off of things, for example, um, or disengaging with the private sector on things that uh, make economic sense for U.S. interests abroad, including. So my uh, special area of the world is to lead a small but mighty team focused on conflict minerals as well as critical minerals and to kind of keep our arms around this burgeoning area of national uh, strategic importance. I think most of our listeners are familiar with the term conflict minerals, but you also work on uh, what's now called responsible sourcing, but you've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, Can you tell us maybe the, uh, how that uh, we went from conflict minerals to responsible sourcing and where we are now? Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it is a fascinating area of work and one I'm super passionate about and I've seen it evolve in the number of years that I've been doing this. I took on this role in 2017. And in 2017, you had a a group of us looking at threat finance issues 
and conflict minerals or conflict diamonds, right? So uh, tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold out of the DRC and its nine neighbors as covered by Dodd-Frank 1502, legislation that's still in place that requires companies who file with the SEC to report on their efforts to keep conflict minerals uh, out of their supply chains. Um, as well as the Kimberly process, which is a different thing related, you know, only to, to rough diamonds, but brought us into a lot of work with the jewelry sector. Well, in December of 2017, the president signed Executive Order 13817, talking about critical minerals and 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 limiting U.S. reliance on sources for critical minerals from sources overseas. So suddenly this conversation that had been focused on conflict minerals per se under this one piece of legislation or diamonds under this one piece of of legislation sort of took on a new life because in addition to that executive order, you had private company supply chains increasingly concerned about how their products came to market. That's where you saw the phrase responsible mineral sourcing, I think, really start to take off because you had companies, even if they didn't source those three TGs or or diamonds saying, well, what's next? What's going to be covered next? Or my supply chain consumers are concerned about the public association with this practice in in my, my supply chain, whatever the commodity is. So when Executive Order 13817 came along, it asked the Department of Interior to establish a list of critical minerals, things that the United States needs for economic or defense reasons. And that list ended up being like 35 things, right? Now, that list of 35 things includes tin, tantalum, and tungsten. So conflict minerals, three of them are a subset of critical minerals. But the concept of responsible sourcing suddenly started to gain a little bit of a different hue because it wasn't just about, are you getting minerals that enriched an arm group from Eastern DRC? It's about, are you really aware of where your supply chain is running through? And, and is it something that the United States is interested in diversifying, right? So it wasn't just about the, the, the how, it was also about the where and the when. And then at the same time, lots of things going on. We've been very busy. We had a couple more um, activities under executive action, like the creation of a, um, a prong under Venezuela sanctions that sanctioned gold coming out of Venezuela. Um, Minervin, the Venezuelan gold company, as well as its president, were designated especially designated nationals. And so you've suddenly got legal requirements about things coming out of the earth. So you've got conflict minerals under Dodd-Frank. You've got critical minerals under this executive order. You've got a different facet of conflict minerals because we're now talking about gold out of Venezuela. But that's not even, that's, that's in addition to concerns that were previously existing about gold as a tool of enriching narco traffickers or uh, impoverishing the environment through the use of mercury. So you can see this like tidal wave of concern about how commodities come out of the ground, where they come from, what's the the strategic interest behind them, what's the environmental or the human rights impact around them. Uh, so it's it's been a very busy time, but the the topic continues to evolve and gain traction and importance. I hope that helps. <laughs> we met at a conference. Uh, I'm not quite sure how long ago. At least a couple of years. And you were, we were both speaking, and one of the things uh, you talked about at the conference was 
how you and your colleagues at the State Department work with the private sector. And I think you went so far as to call it a government public company partnership or some form mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that a fair statement? And is that still ongoing? Yes. So the State Department in 2011 formed with the U.S. Agency for International Development a public-private partnership that we call the Public-Private Alliance for Responsible Minerals Trade. And it is in, it was intended to bring companies and public sector actors like NGOs or academia together to support and create conflict-free supply chains, specifically pursuant to obligations under Dodd-Frank 1502. And so in that time, um, we are now on our second memorandum of understanding with that organization. We have more than 40 members. We've established and funded pilot projects that have had some great success on things like conflict-free gold. Um, We're starting to embark on some small grants with mobile banking, uh, as well as some organizations that are deeply involved in human rights issues in Eastern DRC and the intersection with minerals. And uh, it's a it's an entity that I'm super proud to be associated with. We are looking at ways to help that organization evolve also, um, as we're at a little bit of an inflection point when it comes to minerals, given all that I just outlined. We're, we're not just talking about Eastern DRC anymore, and we're not just talking about those four things. Um, so we're uh, so that's an exciting thing, and it remains open for membership. So uh, we'd love to have you. So one of the things that has uh, struck me about this year of 2020, and we're recording this in late December 2020, is how uh, there's a greater awareness now of generally of the vulnerability of supply chains. Um, mm-hmm. Some see it as a national security issue. Many businesses see it as a hugely important reputational issue. Um, And now we see responsible sourcing also seen perhaps in a little bit different light. And I was wondering if if you could talk to us about responsible sourcing as a national security issue. Absolutely. National security and responsible sourcing continue to be two very uh, consistent perspectives. You cannot have a strong national security Um, plank that relies on commodities if you are not taking a hard look at where your materials come from, how they're coming to market, where they're being processed and manufactured, and whether or not there are any resultant vulnerabilities. So I mentioned, for example, the executive order that enables uh, gold gold from Venezuela to be sanctioned. You could also look at the Global Magnitsky Executive Order, which talks, which um, ended in the, or I'm sorry, included the designation of businessman Dan Gertler for corrupt activities in minerals out of DRC. But you've also got responsible sourcing as a matter of understanding the vulnerabilities in your supply chain. So much of responsible mineral sourcing comes back to due diligence and whether or not you have substantively understood your supply chain or whether you're doing a box checking exercise. And what I constantly tell my private sector counterparts is that the more you consider responsible sourcing just a matter of checking a box instead of the substantive improvement over time that you are asked for under things like Dodd-Frank, the the more vulnerable you're going to be. I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of regulation or not of these supply chains, but I can say an informed 
uh, supply chain actor understands every node of the supply chain. So if somebody comes to me and says, all right, we're looking at, you know, the three T's and G, what comes next? I'm looking at them and saying, what's in your supply chain? What minerals are you using? What's the commodity you care about? That's your answer. Don't look at me, look at your business and make sure that you're comfortable with where you stand. Uh, you know, that's really interesting the way you phrase that, because in most compliance regimes, whether it be anti-corruption, whether it be money laundering, whether it be trade sanctions, the very first starting point is to assess your risks, to determine your company's risk. And you sounded to me, you said the same thing. What's in your supply chain and what are your risks, whether those risks be responsible sourcing, whether those risks be a sole source supplier, whether those risks be human trafficking or, or, or a variety of others. Uh, it seems to me you're saying, you look, you look at your own company and you determine what your risks are, then perhaps we can help you put together a risk management strategy. But it all starts with you determining your risks. Tom, you said it way better than I did. That's for sure. I think the thing I would add to that is in this age of COVID, how many businesses got surprised by closures or disruptions in their supply chains based on COVID response? probably, I'm taking a big guess here, I don't think it's really a guess, but I'm going to say it's a guess, companies that knew their supply chain were much more nimble in responding to disruption than the companies who did not have a well-mapped understanding of of their supply chains and hadn't done that due diligence. Let me change the focus just a little bit because I believe in September there was an executive order on domestic supply chains relying on critical, critical mineral sourcing from foreign adversaries. Could you talk to us a little bit about that executive order, what it laid out, what uh, the president through that executive order asks, and uh, what reports, if any, will be delivered to uh, the the executive branch? Absolutely. So you're talking about Executive Order 13953 that was signed on September 30th of 2020. Before I talk about that, I want to step back a little bit and go back to the executive order I mentioned from December of 2017, 13817. That executive order um, set in motion some uh, tasks for domestic agencies to get at improving how the United States sources critical minerals from domestic sources and put into play a whole lot of things like uh, improving the permitting process or uh, improving geologic education in the United States, a set of things that were designed to kind of structurally improve how the United States could lessen its reliance on sources of these things from overseas. Fast forward to the September 30th executive order, and I would say there was some important tweaking around the edges. It, um, it made some technical improvements and clarifications for, say, the Department of Energy and some loan programs that they are allowed to uh, report on or, or offer, rather. It asked uh, for a report from the Office, of, the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House to report on some continued vulnerabilities. It asked the State Department to report on our activities under responsible sourcing, which um, covered a, a couple of different categories. Categories. And so um, the executive order, I think, really kind of tweaked some of the issues that were known to be at work in the domestic agencies, but then asked for some more reporting to the president. Whether or not those reports get made public, I can't say. I think each agency kind of handled itself, uh, handled its own. And I believe that some of those reports are, are likely still in draft, um, knowing that they, they do take a little bit of time to put together. 
what would be the process for considering any issues that may be uh, coming out of those reports? Would it be a working group of agencies such as State Department? Would it be left to the individual agencies? How how would you foresee some sort of coordinated uh, either action or guidance going forward? Yeah, it's a really good question because there's um, there's a lot of different work that touches on these equities from across the U.S. interagency. Um, through the original federal strategy from 2019 that was coordinated through um, the uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy and released by the Commerce Department, there's an incredible amount of interagency collaboration because each of these equities and authorities kind of reside in different homes. I think I'd be probably the first to tell you that we we don't always have a, a, a belly button coordinating on these things, but as a as a panoply of professionals across the U.S. government, we really come together to coordinate and produce what I think are, are useful materials. I think going forward, um, there's no shortage of, of desire and interest in continuing to have this collaboration across interagency partners. Um, and what that looks like moving forward, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but I can say that it's a really exciting place to be. And I'm very proud of the U.S. counterparts that I work with. One of the things that struck me uh, when I first met you was the consistency of your work at the State Department, it really irregardless of, of who led the administration. That it's something, it's a cadre of professionals like yourself, uh, very passionate about what you do, but uh, generally, the, the administration, not that they completely leave you alone, but they understand the importance of what you and your group are doing. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I, I serve my country, and I've done so proudly for a long time now. And, uh, and I can say that I, uh, I have always taken these issues to be precisely that, things that are in the U.S. national interest, even though I work with an agency whose objectives are dealing with U.S. interests overseas at the State Department, I work really closely and have the most respect for my colleagues with the Department of Defense or Energy uh, in other bureaus at the State Department. Everybody's working uh, with the same mission for U.S. policy interests, for sure. Then do you see really any changes com- coming from the incoming administration, or is that to be determined? Gosh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I know that the, there's a transition underway and we're standing ready to assist and advise in any way we are asked. Pamela, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any information on perhaps some of the topics, uh, the executive order or the, um, the Kimberly process. Is there a resource they could go to on the State Department website? There are a couple different resources. You can go to the State Department's Bureau of Economic uh, and Business Affairs, and you're sure to find stuff on conflict and critical minerals. I would also encourage you to look up an initiative uh, sponsored by a sister bureau of mine at the State Department that I uh, am super proud of called the Energy Resource Governance Initiative, um, and that's available online as well. But also don't be shy about going to the Department of Interior's U.S. Geological Survey website. There's a tremendous amount of technological information and specific uh, geological information there that I think is is actually maybe more interesting than the layman would appreciate. Well, Pamela, as always, I've learned a ton uh, from visiting with you for this podcast. I'm sure our listeners have, too. Uh, I hope that we can continue the conversation. Absolutely, Tom. And I wish you and your listeners the very best for 2021. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. 
I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as it would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.